I think a lot of people aren't prepared for um, what a change it is to their life. It's stressful when it when you know the when the book is not doing well. It's stressful when the book is kind of doing okay. It's stressful when the book does well because it's like it changes it changes everything for you. So um, there's no winning. It's not yeah, and it's easy to feel it's feel feel very judged because you put your heart and soul into these things, into these books, and then people are reading your heart and soul, and you kind of have to pretend like. Um, you're not affected by that and <laughs> be very professional. And it's, yeah, um, it's not, an, that's one thing I try to do beginning writer stuff. I try to tell people it's not an easy career. You have to treat it like a job if you want to be a professional writer, as opposed to, you know, just writing for fun, writing fanfic or, or just writing, you know, your original stuff for fun. You have to treat it like a job and be professional, but it's, um, it's really, really not easy. What is up, everybody? You're listening to episode 55 of SFF Addicts. I'm your host, Adrian Ebb Gibson, and this is your weekly dive into the world of science fiction, fantasy, and writing craft. Joining me as always is my co-host, the Chewie to my Han Solo, the Joker to my Commander Shepard, MJ Kuhn, author of Among Thieves, and I realize I never pimp your book, so there it is right there. How's it going, MJ? <laughs> yeah, geez, Adrian. I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing really well. I'm such a good co-host for you. <laughs> Um, a quick note for listeners, the official, official SFF Addicts Patreon and merch store are now live. So check the links in the description to support what we do here. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Fanfatic YouTube channel where this and other, every other episode is available in full video. And now welcoming today's guest author, the wonderful Martha Wells, author of the Murderbot series, Witch King and more. Welcome, Martha. How's it going? Oh, just fine. And thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. But to kick things off, could you let listeners and viewers know a bit more about yourself? Uh, I've been writing uh, or I've been published since 1993 uh, when my first novel came out from Tor, The Element of Fire. Um, I've done a lot of different fantasy and science fiction. I've done um, a, a few media tie-ins, some nonfiction uh, most recently, uh, my most recent fantasy series was the Books of the Raxura, and then uh, science fiction is the Murderbot Diaries, which has been out since, coming out in, in novellas and one novel uh, since 2018. No, 2017. I'm sorry. <laughs> it all, all runs together. <laughs> it all does. Time <laughs> has no meaning anymore. <laughs> So true. <laughs> so I'm curious, um, you know, I, I know all of us are, we're all book people. Um, so I'm curious as to how did you get into reading? Do you remember like the first science fiction fantasy books that like grabbed hold of your heart while you were growing up? Um, I don't remember the first. I know my parents had a lot of books in the house. They mainly had a lot of the Reader's Digest editions. <laughs> So I read a lot of books and not really kind of realizing they were the, they were, you know, because they would truncate them to fit like five of them in a book of this right. size. So yeah. it was like they were very, they were very, um, um, you know, censored and, and um, 
um, boulderized a little bit <laughs> kind of thing. But uh, and then I ended up realizing that and going and reading the actual book from the library. Um, I really I was into the author, Andre Norton. Um, she wrote a lot of books that now would be considered YA because that was before YA was a genre, which was created by librarians to bridge between children's and adult books. So, um, and she wrote science fiction and fantasy and some historical and, and um, just really kind of uh, the kind of stuff I grew up with. It was more uh, blends of science fiction and fantasy, kind of almost like what called, was called sword and planet for a while where, you know, it starts out and the person is riding on this creature with horns and there's two moons in the sky and, <clears throat> And you can't really tell if it's magic or telepathy and and that kind of thing. And that's she wrote a lot of that, and then a lot of other more typical science fiction and fantasy. So I was uh, that was probably my favorite author growing up. So cool! I I like I really want them to bring back Sword and Planet because <laughs> yeah. it's like such an interesting concept. And I remember reading uh, Werner Vinge's A Fire Upon the Deep. And just being like, this is like half fantasy novel, half like hard, hard sci-fi. And I kind of <laughs> love that blend and, and the the sort of like diffusion of those two genres kind of coming together in that way. I think it's more common now to do things like that than it was for quite a while. Like in the, at least I'm for sure in the 90s, there was a while there where the categories were very restrictive between science fiction and fantasy. And, and they would divide fantasy up into these... Um, varied but meaningless categories <laughs> that didn't make a lot of sense. And I remember being on panels trying to debate the difference between high fantasy and epic fantasy. And it was oh, like, man. who, who oh, knows? <laughs> and you're trying to make this make sense, you know, and it's like, and pretend that this is the thing, you know, so <laughs> oh, it's gosh. like words have no meaning kind of deal, but yeah. I'm glad no that meaning, we're not doing that no anymore. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. If I had to describe the difference between high fantasy and epic fantasy, I don't know that oh, I have like a specific touchstone for that. Like I feel like is there a low, similar. there's a difference with low fantasy and sword and sorcery. There was like five or six yeah. categories that didn't make any sense. And, and oh, um, they were all just fantasy. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad now that it's just fantasy. It's, it's, we don't have to try to do that. Yeah. It's a lot more open and a little, a little freer. I love that. Um, yeah. So you were really into the those books, and I love that. And do you remember a moment uh, when when you were drawn to writing, where you were like, "I want to write my own book someday"? I don't really remember because I always kind of did stories. My mother had piles of like crayon stuff, Godzilla stories I had written. <laughs> I would write cool. things about stuff I saw on TV. Uh, we only had like five channels back then. And one of them was an independent that showed monster movies and scary movies and all the good stuff. And, and I wrote, you know, things like that about lost in space and land of the giants and wrote, um, made maps of monster Island from the cartoon, I love it. you know, and in, in on big sheets of typing paper and stuff. So I don't really, really remember one moment. Um, it was just, I kind of always wanted to be that by the time I went to college, I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't really know how to do it right. at that point, how you went about having a career as a writer. Yeah. So how was it for you kind of 
entering into this world like properly and, and publishing your first book in the 1990s and, and figuring out a way to like become a writer. But then also how does that era look to you upon reflection versus like what you see now? We've already kind of touched on a little bit with this genre bullshit, but <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was kind of in some ways it was a bit simpler because this was before, I mean, you had the web, uh, kind of early web 1.0 and, uh, and early search engines and, and that kind of thing. And, and um, people in, in uh, chat, you know, kind of uh, like the old genie system, uh, you would get on a bulletin, bulletin boards basically and do that in mailing lists. But um, it was really, well, I should start back at the beginning is basically when I went to college, I chose the university, Texas A&M University, because in Starlog Magazine, one time they had a list of fan clubs and it had a science fiction fan club that had a student club that had a convention. And that's why I picked it because I wanted, I, I knew enough about the science fiction and fantasy fandom that I wanted to be more involved with it. And um, so that's why I chose it. And through that club and that convention, I got to meet authors. I got to, to work as a one year for uh, Aggie Con, the science fiction convention. And I was chairman one year. And so got to see a lot of authors talk about how, how publishing worked and how they got published. I did a writer's workshop. Uh, I think my first semester uh, with Stephen Gould, who lived there, who lived in college station at the time. And he did a writer's workshop through the university and, um, and then did other workshops around in Austin. I did uh, Turkey City uh, with Bruce Sterling. Um, and just, yeah, it was um, kind of learning. And, and I wrote short stories, but never really managed to sell one. The first thing I sold was my novel, The Element of Fire. Um, and, um, yeah, it was a different experience because you weren't, it took so long to get information. The book would come out, and it was just kind of, out there somewhere and you can see it in bookstores <laughs> and you really didn't know how it was doing. You right. couldn't, Amazon didn't exist. I don't think at that point. So you couldn't look up your, your um, ranking on it and get any information or anything like that. So I think in some ways it was less stressful because everybody <laughs> knew things took a long time and you wouldn't really know for a long time until you got like a royalty report or something. Um, and to kind of tell you how things were going. Um, now I think it is a lot more stressful because you can watch a book tank in real time, you know. <laughs> well, and so, you can, you know, be refreshing your your Goodreads, you know what I mean, if yeah. you really want to torture yourself. If you really want to torture yourself. Exactly. There are so many, yeah, so many opportunities to torture yourself. It's not even funny. <laughs> there Sarah. are. There really are. The blessing, the blessing of having more information yeah. at our fingertips. But at the same time, I, it's kind of ironic because authors nowadays complain about how slow publishing is. And it's just like, huh. Well, and that's, uh -huh. I was just thinking, I feel like I don't know how things are doing. And it's funny because like friends that I talk to that aren't in the publishing world, like a couple weeks after my debut came out would be like, oh, so how's it doing? And I'd be like, oh, I don't know. Oh. You yeah. know, I feel like even still there's... <laughs> And they're yeah. like, what? How do you not know how it's selling? And it's like, I don't know. They didn't tell me how the numbers are. Um, but if it was even slower before, <laughs> like, yeah, <thanks. laughs> Yeah, you have a lot of information, and you're, but you're still just kind of guessing. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's kind of a lot. Of, I, think it's, I think it's really stressful. I know so many debut authors who um, 
basically have so many problems with the stress of it. Um, I think a lot of people aren't prepared for um, what a change it is to their life. And um, it's stressful when it, when, you know, the, when the book is not doing well, it's stressful when the book is kind of doing okay. It's stressful when the book does well, because it's like, it changes, (laughs) it changes everything for you. There's um, There's no winning. It's not. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to feel, it's feel, it feel very judged because you put your heart and soul into these things, into these books, and then people are reading your heart and soul and you kind of have to pretend like, um, you're not affected by that and <laughs> be yeah. very professional. And it's, yeah, um, it's not an, that's one thing why I try to do beginning writer stuff. I try to tell people it's not an easy career. You have to treat it like a job if you want to be a professional writer, as opposed to, you know, just writing for fun, writing fanfic or, or just writing, you know, your original stuff for fun. Um, you have to treat it like a job and be professional, but it's, um, it's really, really not easy. For sure. And for you, you know, having been in it for, for a couple decades now, you know, as your career has progressed, I know you've had like a few ups and downs and, and oh, yeah. I want to kind of build on what you're just talking about in terms of like, how have these highs and lows and middle points and all of this kind of stuff shaped your perspective of what it means to be a writer, but also what success even means as a writer? Yeah, it's, um, well, I think success in, in its basic sense as a writer, as a professional writer means, um, staying published, um, it doesn't necessarily mean making tons of money because very few people do that. Most people, um, I know th- some people probably measure success in being able to quit their day job to be- as a, and that, that writing would take the place of that. That's kind of a dangerous thing to do because there are so many ups and downs. And one of the perceptions people have is that you get published and you stay with that publisher for the rest of your career and everything's hunky dory and you'll always, your books will always come out. And it's like, it's so the opposite of that, you know, <laughs> right. most, yeah, yeah. Most publishers now, I think, uh, at least when I was doing, um, the racks, books of the racks are, will usually buy two books. Um, and sometimes they don't, but <laughs> usually when they like the first book, they'll ask for a second one. And then, so that makes it really hard to do a series. That's why I did the back books of the racks the first three are basically almost standalone because I didn't want to leave people on a cliffhanger. And I only did um, the, um, uh, the the last two when I know for that it, as a complete, it was basically a two-part story to make sure that um, I would be able to tell that whole story when those two were bought together. So, yeah, it's just, um, you can have, especially... Uh, the big thing that got me, I think, was they, they called it the publishing death spiral. That's when bookstore chains in particular would, if a book sold a certain amount, they'd order less of the next book and then not reorder. <laughs> so you were kind of guaranteed that your sales would gradually drop. Fine. Yeah. yeah. And so um, you could get trapped in that. And then the you know, the publisher doesn't want any more of your books because they're not selling at a certain level. And, um, yeah, my trilogy, I also got caught in a thing with, um, um, after the death of the necromancer came out, um, 
before Wheel of the Infinite came out, the Avon Eos, the publisher I was with at the time, was bought by HarperCollins. And they just uh, were not as in Avon Eos had a model where they had fewer authors, fewer books per month and more attention paid to uh, the individual books and authors. And HarperCollins had more scattershot and uh, without that kind of promotion and everything, I just went and also um, um, things that were going on in the world. There was a big dip in book buying um, uh you know, after 9-11 and then um, uh, just in spending money, I think. And then and things like that affected a lot. That's why the publishers were so afraid when um, the pandemic started that that was going to happen. There was going to be a big dip in book buying. Instead, there wasn't. It went up. Right. It went up. Yeah. <laughs> particularly, particularly children's and YA went up because everyone's mm-hmm. kids are home. And it's like, oh, my God. we got to keep these kids busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but also yeah. it's like the world is just so depressing and I need something to lift my spirits. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm yeah. Exactly. I remember there was a great picture of Chris Pine in a mask <gasps> yes. walking down the street with a giant paper grocery bag filled with books. <laughs> and you were like, Yeah. The first time I've ever mm, like understood fully why people think Chris Pine is hot for the record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Farmer's like, Market. I, yeah. <laughs> He's got Farmer's Market Dad energy. Hot, totally hot dad does. energy. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. Books and organic veggies, MJ. That's what it's all about. Yes. <laughs> you know what? All right, I take it back. I'm fully in now, though. That sounds like my yeah, gym aggressively. Cool. <laughs> Oh, I love it. So yeah, it's been a lot of ups and downs. It's been because uh, it is there's so much you can't control in, in terms of what the market does, but also just in terms of what your publisher does or doesn't yeah. do what bookstores do or don't do. Um, well, MJ, you you know about like the whole like, I'm gonna write a duology <laughs> and cliffhangers and publishers. Yes, well, and that's when you were talking about that. That's exactly crappy. what happened to me. It was a battle to get yeah. the second book picked up. And people were like, where's book two? And I was like, I wish I could tell you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, it happens. But let's move on to happier things. Let's talk about, well, <laughs> Murderbot. I love Murderbot so much. So uh, much happier, I, right? Murderbot speaks to my soul. <laughs> Murderbot makes me happy. All right. Yeah. Um, well, well, good. Well, <laughs> right. You're like, great. Uh, I want to talk about what sparked your desire to uh, dive deep into sci fi um, with All Systems Red. Like, what, what uh, inspired that tale? Um, I. I was actually finishing, it was in 2016, and I was finishing up The Harbors of the Sun, and I was getting all kinds of ideas. And originally, it was an idea for a short story, um, and the idea of a, a, an enslaved person that was like a security person, but with this augments and everything, and had freed themselves, but was laying low and was going to have to actually reveal that to save these people. And that was going to be a, a sad short story with a sad ending. And oh, then no. I started... You know, I wrote the scene first with, I, I was just going to make notes on it so I'd remember it because I still had to finish the, the book I was working on. And I ended up with like the first five pages, just, you know, just like that. And this it was a scene with where Mensa knocks on the cubicle wall and they have that conversation. And then I got, when I actually started working on it, um, I got the first line and that kind of really pulled the character together. And I realized pretty quickly it was not because I'm, I'm, I'm not great at writing short stories. I don't do it very much. The last one I did, The Salt Witch, it took me about a year to write that story. And so I wanted it to be 
I knew it was going to have to be longer and Tor.com had their novella program going. And so I thought that would actually be a good fit. And so um, when I wrote the first one, yeah, it's about 32,000 words, something like that, a good novella length. Um, it sold and that was very exciting. And then um, they asked for a second novella and it could have been anything different. It could have done something different, but I thought, you know, I really like this character. I really, and I wanted to go on. And so it was just artificial condition that I wrote next. And then we decided to add the other two to, to offer them two more. And that's kind of what started the whole thing. Yeah. Cause that I can, I can, just imagine like the character coming to you in, in such a way where it's like, you just really click. And Murderbot is that kind of character as a reader who immediately upon Speaks starting all system red, it's like, yeah, especially, <laughs> I feel like it was like a good, it, it fit well with like the pandemic where it's just like, I need some sarcasm. I need some like wit. Uh, but I was like this, this Android, this robot is essentially like capturing my like, melancholy in my a really general state of ennui exactly, yeah. exactly. so well, i think there's a lot of bitter anger i wrote 2016 i was furious and there's a lot of bitter anger in it yeah that i put into it but also just uh kind of wish fulfillment in that Murderbot can do things about some of this stuff and i think that's what people um um you know, identify with in a lot of ways. It's like the situation is so bad. It's funny. You kind of have to laugh at it and it just, everything just sucks. But, um, there are certain things Murderbot can do and it's not helpless. Cause I, that is one of my big things. I'm reading about characters that are bad things are happening to them and they're helpless. That's one of my things. I, I just find that too depressing. It just has a bad effect on me. No, I can imagine. And especially like, you know, for the both of you living in the United States, it's like fucking Donald <laughs> Trump and then fucking COVID and just like all this mess after mess after mess. Yeah. It's like, okay, let's just it's like a really uneventful this. few years, Adrian. It's been fine. Super chill. <laughs> super chill. Yeah. It's just one thing. Yeah. One terrible thing after another. But to have like a satirical character who you're able to give agency to them, I think is really good because it's like for you, it, it probably acts a bit like therapy. And then for readers as well, they gravitate towards that, that kind of. Uh, that character and the motivations and and the capabilities as well to be like, yeah, things can get better, you know. Even if you're like a depressed robot who just wants to watch like TV serials or whatever, <laughs> you just wants to binge watch television. I love it. Yeah, just let me binge watch Netflix, man. Um, well, that was another thing when I was in in the in reading bulletin boards and stuff when I first started out. So many people were like, "Oh, television, it's it's not intellectual," and and because we were starting, that was when we were really starting to get after Star Wars, actual fun science fiction fantasy on TV. And yeah. a lot of it was bad, but <laughs> it was fun, you know, because he didn't have that stuff when, you know, for a long time. And it's gotten, you know, we've gotten more and better and and, and all this. And so people be, would, would turn their noses up at the TV. I would see that a lot at TV, science fiction and fantasy. And that always um, made me mad because it's like it's it was so – fandom of like star Wars fandom and star Trek and those things had been really important to me as a very solitary kid for just a pretend world to go into. And so, um, 
I like that I was finally able to write something where I could talk about the importance of that, of basically that kind of mental retreat is like putting a mental fortress around yourself. And it's a mental fortress you can also share with other people that are watching the same thing to a certain extent. So it was nice having a chance to finally write about that too. And have so many people go, oh yeah, me too. I like that. That's what I I want to do. Literally, as I was reading All Systems Red for the first time, I was like highlighting some of Murderbot's internal dialogue and like sending pictures of it to my friends, like taking a picture (laughs) with my phone of me like, look, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is, it's just so relatable. But um, I'm curious, because you've written quite a bit uh, of Murderbot at this point. Does it still feel as like exciting and fresh to write from that perspective all these years later or um you know is it starting to get a little eh, you know are you are you getting me <laughs> well that was one thing with the character is the the character is going through an evolution and at some point that's going to stop and so i'm going to be able to i have like two more contracted right now besides the uh besides the one that's coming out in november and that i had trouble getting doing the course uh, that was the one I was trying to work on when the pandemic started and I ended up setting it aside so I could write Witch King because I wasn't really getting a handle on what was going on with the character. It was just, I was having writer's block and problems. But, um, when I finally figured it out was when I realized this is the book that takes place directly after network effect. Fugitive telemetry actually takes place beforehand, but, um, it was about Murderbot dealing with what happened during network effect to it. And I realized it was going to need to um, deal with that in a way it hadn't dealt with stuff before the effect of it, like having basically dealing, I mean, it has PTSD already, obviously, but it was became, becomes more obvious in this book. And so that, and it wasn't until I figured that out. So it's kind of like with each book, I have to figure out what, what evolution is the character going through with this story? So um, when I can't think of anything else, that's when it's going to have to stop because yeah, there's <laughs> nothing to say really. But I like that. I like that the character is evolving for you and the, the ability to enter into the story and be like, okay, there is something for me to tell is really important. Cause it's like, if, yeah. as a writer, if you don't have something to tell, then it's just like, don't tell it. Cause it's not going to come out well for you it's not gonna be fun it would be such a slog yeah yeah Yeah. there has to be a story there a story of the not only what physically happens in the plot but but something that happens with the character and in each one of the others murder bots come to it's it's come to a realization that might always be obvious but um about its relationship with humans and um you know, particularly in uh, exit strategy, I think, and and then rogue protocol. This, it's if it had gone back to Mensa, if it had gone home with Mensa and all systems red, it would not have gone through that evolution. It would have been trading, um, trading up to a nicer captor, basically. Yeah, yeah. it would not have been, and it, and it, the fact that it it had grown enough in confidence to be able to go back which it didn't want to do. It kind of ended up there. So that wasn't a decision it made, but the fact that it decided to stay um, was the decision. Um, And then in fugitive telemetry, learning how to actually work with um, the, the people on preservation is what that one's about. And then network effect is going back to art and having that, that journey. 
and then system collapse is basically um, the impact of everything they found on the planet and trying to begin finish that situation. So, yeah. And I don't know what the air two are going to be yet. I'm still working on that. Nice. Well, system collapse is a good name for that. It's like, let's deal with this shit. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Something's got to happen here. But I, I, I like that, that, that Murderbot is still fresh for you. And just kind of pivoting a little bit to something that we mentioned earlier on the topic of keeping things fresh. You know, you mentioned that Tor acquired some of your backlist fantasy books, uh, including City of Bones. So each of them is going to be revised, updated, and reissued. Yeah. So for you, how strange and exciting at the same time has it been to kind of like revisit these old works and then bring them new life? It was, yeah, it was hard because... Uh, I've grown so much and looking at the writing, I was just like, Oh my God, people read this. This is horrible. You know? Uh, and I could see, um, it really was, you know, cause you ha- I mean, as a writer, you have to continually work on your craft and continually evolve and change, or it's just not going to be good. And it was kind of cool to see where I started and say, okay, yeah, when people said I had this problem, now I can see it. Um, I think I had a lot of pro. I was really holding back emotionally and afraid to um, really let my characters show uh, how I was feeling. Um, and, and, and it was hard to kind of reveal those emotions and Murderbot is kind of the culmination of, yeah, just put it all out on the page. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this is stupid. This sucks. I hate this. You know? <laughs> and that kind of, and it was like, it sounds fun. But yeah, it's, it's, I can really see the evolution. So that is interesting. But having to work with old version of Martha and you're just like, oh my God, oh no. Um, it's like oh, going through a high school. It's like, People it's like read going that through, line. It's terrible. It's like going through a high school yearbook and just being like, God, what did I do with my hair? Like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's <laughs> exactly like, like that. Yeah. Oh, no. Why oh, was man. this a good idea? Um, so, yeah, it's been interesting. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. But for you, it's like on the flip side, you know, going back and, and reading these, these older works and being like, oh, hold Martha. Like, why? You know, but then you get to inject new life into them. And then, you know, I imagine for you, it's like a big uh a big kind of like hope to encourage new readers or readers that kind of uh gravitated towards your work with Murderbot to dig into your fantasy back catalog and just kind of check yeah. that stuff out. Um I've I'm trying to kind of preserve the um, you want to try to preserve the original feel of the book yeah. and not just completely redo it, but also make it not <laughs> <laughs> that's a good so, yeah. just, just make it not I suck. Sure. That, that's I'm, murder, I'm excited. That, that is your inner murder bot. And I love it's so ironic yeah. that like <laughs> my emotions came through on the page through an Android robot. Through thing. a robot, yeah. I know, but I love it <laughs> yeah. though. It's so relatable. Oh, um dude. so I personally am excited to dig into the fantasy back catalog, and I think a lot of people will, especially after Witch King. Let's transition and talk a little bit about Witch King. Um, so I'm curious as to, you said you transitioned to writing it during the pandemic. Um, how did the story, the world, all of that, how did that come about for you? I was 
I, w- I know some people during when the pandemic started, they weren't able to have the concentration to read, but I still was. So I was reading a lot of fantasy and um, I watched, um, I started getting into watching uh, Netflix started to put up some Chinese fantasy dramas. They're really good. And especially the untamed. Um, yeah. And, and uh, it's just, they started having all this new stuff and it was like, um, I watched the untamed and a lot of my friends got into it too. And so I was getting, it was, a, it's a very different kind of fantasy with, you know, very um, told differently. And that kind of got my brain working again. And um just got there was a there was a kind of a story I'd always kind of wanted to play with I'd always been playing with the beginning of for a long long time but never really went anywhere and I took that out again and started rewriting it and that was the genesis for it basically and originally I wasn't it's got the two timelines uh, because basically I kind of thought of it as an epic fantasy the good parts version <laughs> where <laughs> you're seeing the just the 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 um, you're not seeing the whole thing from the beginning. You're seeing all of it, all of this history at one time and through these people who are um, basically immortal, but have this really deeply personal stake in what's going on. And um, so I didn't originally intend to do the, I, I was going to have just a few flashbacks, but as it kept going, it's like, I need to show this backstory. This is, this is the, uh, an important part of the story. So it just kind of came together and it took me a long time um, I say a lot, it didn't take me a long time to write. It took about a year, but um, there was a huge amount of rewriting. And one of my friends who was, we were, we were on vacation um, in, a, in a group when I started writing it. And so I was making her read it and she probably read the first, uh, you know, 40,000 to 80,000 words, like five or six times. It's like, wow. like, do it and then be like okay read it and she'd be like okay i, ho- I <laughs> hope she was doing i hope she was doing this right willingly yes. <laughs> we're on vacation read this <laughs> i love that though i love it i love it well and i think that it works really well going back and forth between the present present day and those past storylines because i do feel like uh with all the rewriting it ended up striking a really nice balance of giving us the details from the past that we needed to understand the next piece fully, right? And have it resonate fully with what was happening in the presence. Um, so oh, yeah. thank you. Good. I think, yeah. really, <laughs> I think it played out well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My editor, Lee Harris, was really helpful too because even when I when I turned it in finally, um, I was like, it's almost there. And he gave me some comments and that really helped um, kind of pull everything together so yeah that took that book went through a lot of evolution <laughs> mm-hmm. it's cool though because you know i like how you mentioned it it's like this is what the the for anyone who's listening it's like there are very distinct like past present dual timelines but i like how you know epic fantasy loves to tell the history in like a very chonky info dumpy <laughs> prologue yeah. or something like uh-huh. that um, but it was really cool that you did this back and forth where, where you essentially did that history in real time through the perspective of these characters who you said are immortal. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about the main character, Kai. Why was a demon the right fit <laughs> as the protagonist for this book? And how did Kai provide like the right lens through which to view the world and its history and the magic systems and the character relationships, et cetera? 
Yeah, I wanted to show a character because I'm a lot of influence from the Untamed. So I wanted to show a character that um, basically I'd always kind of liked showing things from the bad guys, the person who who could have been the bad guy's perspective, like starting with Death of the Necromancer, uh, actually starting with Element of Fire, since Element of Fire, Cade is kind of supposed to be the evil fairy queen, but she's one of our main protagonists. Um, so I've always kind of had that. That's a really interesting viewpoint. So this is kind of just another evolution of that is this person who um, could have been the bad guy and to the other side is probably a, a figure of absolute terrifying villainy. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, setting aside the fact that they were also figures of absolute terrifying villainy. Yeah. But, um, um, and it was so, I've always loved that perspective. And then the character kind of evolved from there as um, uh, being someone that was kind of there at the table in the room when all this stuff happened. And, but it so affected all these other people who have absolutely no idea of the true history. And so that he's even now, even in his present day is kind of a, a controversial figure, even though um, he's one of the people that their lives have depended on, you know? Right. So it's, yeah. So it's kind of like that. I was trying to show, I, that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, um, it's also like a, it's it's like playing a historical game of telephone where the farther <laughs> away you get from a historical event the more uh sort of like disassociated it gets from the truth yeah. in terms of you know like kai knows what happens being present and 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 being an active participant in all the things that that played out but the farther along you go in history it's like there's speculation that this happened or that this happened and you know, it's cool to kind of get the emotion from Kai to be like, what would Kai say outwardly to someone? <laughs> but then right. what kind of what kinds of emotions would he contain within and not reveal to someone that maybe they don't trust fully or or what have you? So yeah. it's kind of cool to see all that play out in the past and the present. Yeah. And also Ramad is a serious historian and yet yeah. he has no idea. <laughs> um, yeah, of the things that as a reader you've just seen happen. Right. And, yeah. So I hope that gets away the frustration of that kind of thing. And you're like, ah, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, we'd love to ask you a little bit more about world building in Witch King, but we'll save it for our mini master class. Wink, wink, hint, hint. Right. Uh, wink, MJ, wink, wait for next week, listeners. No. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So I'm curious um, because I feel like you have um, both like your feet so firmly in both science fiction and fantasy. Um, I am just curious as to how the two genres compare for you, um, you know, like writing them. What's the experience like one versus the other? Um, it's just really a matter of what the characters, what resources the characters have available. Um, because again, when I was first started reading, when I was a kid, there was these science fiction fancy. There wasn't a lot of, um, you know, separation between them as much as there is, as there is now. It was, you know, you're in a spaceship, but people have telepathy and telekinesis and you know, it's just like magic and you're in fantasy, but, um, they have these powers that are just sort of like they had in the spaceship. And 
And it's just a matter of uh, almost of their ability to travel, what kind of technology they have. So I've never, it's, I've never been a big, I've never seen a lot of difference between writing them. It's just what you're, what tools you're working with or what elements, story elements you're working with. Um, I've always been a big fan of both. You know, I've always, um, I really probably Murderbot was very influenced by Ann Leckie's ancillary justice and, um, and some of the other, there was some really good AI, uh, uh, far, fu- far future fictional AI and kind of near future AI uh, books coming out in those, you know, in the past several years. So, yeah, I love that, yeah. that it's, it's about the tools your characters have at their disposal, though, because like I just drafted my first sci fi project after doing all fantasy forever. And I was like, oh, my God. These characters need to talk and they're not in the same place. They can just like call they each can other. Just like, talk. Ah! <laughs> it is. It's kind of like a fun new thing to explore. So, yeah, yeah I love that. <laughs> and being able to travel somewhere fast. I want to have this scene happen over there. Oh, well, they'll just make up a vehicle and just yeah. right. jump in and, and they, go. You know? just go. <laughs> That's awesome, though. Do you find that they're, you know, since for you in your mind, you're not really kind of separating the two, it's more about the tools, it's more about how the necessities of these characters and everything. We'll kind of broaden this to just like writing in general and or to science fiction and fantasy as like a unified whole. Do you find that there's something freeing and fun about writing within these genres? And on the flip side, what are some of the potential challenges that that writing in sci-fi and fantasy brings to you as a writer? Um, yeah, I think it is freeing and fun. I You can kind of just being able to push your imagination. I think that was one of the problems I had when I was first starting out. I was writing... Um, it was secondary world, but very historically based fantasy. So I was doing a lot of research and well, I can't do this because they didn't do this, you know? And so, um, as I've gone along, it's been more fun to just kind of, you know, I, the explanation, I, I need to have an explanation for this element, but the explanation can just be crazy. I mean, it can be, (laughs) it can be whatever I want, um, there's a magic rock that does this and that's what they're using, you know, something like that. And you can just kind of come up with stuff and, and, um, um, and it does, it does free you, I think, to um, just try to push your imagination as far as you can go. And, and um, that's, that's what I was doing. The books of the Rexer is basically I'd come up with something and be like, okay, I could, this would work, but it's not as fun as wild as it could be. So I'll push it further and then push, you know, and, and it's just kind of a neat, um, fun mental exercise. Um, and I actually, I, I don't think I've ever written anything that's not science fiction and fantasy. Would so you? I don't have anything to compare it to. Are you going to start writing it. like thrillers and romance? Um, probably <laughs> not. Just because having to research the real world would be so uh, boring. I've always said that too, right? Like, so, oh, yeah. that's like, look at Google Maps for stuff. Oh, no thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm good. I love it. I love it. So you have had or are having a big year this year with Witch King and System Collapse and your re-releases, all this good stuff. What else do you have in the pipeline, if you can tell us? Um, not much because everything's coming out this year. Just crammed um, into 2023. So I'm working on, I'm, I'm trying to work on the next novel and I really did get slowed down because every time I get started on it, 
a revision or a copy edit comes in that I need to mm. work on for the schedule. So <laughs> for one of your thousands realized, of books coming out this year. <laughs> yeah. And I think they realize that it's like, this is, this is kind of a lot. And it's like, <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, cause originally which King was supposed to come out last year, which would have made a lot more. Yeah. At least <laughs> would have been easier for me. It was spread out a bit. <laughs> But yeah, so I thought I was really far ahead and then suddenly I wasn't at all is what happened. <laughs> it was like a raining so, and pouring situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm working on the next novel and, and just kind of trying to, um, it's going to be one where I'm just going to have to do, sometimes I just have to do a lot of writing that I end up throwing out because it's not right as I figure things out and, that's kind of been my disadvantage as a writer. Sometimes I just have to write the thing and go, no, that's not it. Yeah. And then before I can go, what is it? And um, usually I'm trying to make things too straightforward, which sounds, you know, like something you should do, but sometimes that's not where the story wants to go. The story has to be something else. Um, and hopefully I'll finish this novel this year. It'd be not, I don't know if I will or not. Uh, this bit, what is it? It's, it's almost the end of April. Probably not. Yeah. I will finish this <laughs> yeah. year, um, as originally planned. And then I'm, after that, I'm going to write another murder bot or start another and see what happens. So nice. Well, at the very least Tor is publishing all of your stuff. So like you said, they can, you know, look at like, oh, maybe we're just dumping way too much in Martha. Let's turn <laughs> right. it back a little bit, give you a little bit more space. So at least there's that. At least it's not like different publishers who don't have any idea of what the right. you don't understand. So. Communicate. Yeah. You, yeah. You don't yeah. communicate. Yeah. So <laughs> true. Awesome. Well, uh, to close out, we asked this to all of our guests, but can you give listeners and viewers A, a good bit of soundbite writing advice, and B, tell us a weird or random fact that you find to be utterly fascinating? Okay, writing advice is basically try to find out as much as you can about publishing. So I talked to so many uh, people, particularly young people, that um, got really stuck because they just didn't know or got you know fooled by someone because they didn't know about how the how self publishing and versus how traditional publishing work and um, that information is out there now. When I was starting out, it, you had to like go to a convention or go to a writing seminar or something. But now you can look things up online through the Science Fiction Writers of America has a site called, um, under their umbrella now, called Writer Beware that's run by Victoria Strauss. And she goes into um, the writing scams that are reported to her and how those things happen and stuff and just get as much information as you can. The information is out there. All you got to do is get on, you know, your search engine, um, and, and just prepare yourself for it. You know, it's job, uh, you know, treat it, treat it like one and you will, you know, benefit from that and protect yourself. Um, and then the, what was the, the second one? The weird fact. Weird or random yeah. fact that you find to be utterly fascinating. Weird or random fact. God, there's a lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> oh. It, it may take me a while to think of one. It's <laughs> okay. While, Everything while, is like out of your brain. That's what happened to me. Yeah. yeah. While, while you're thinking, I'll mention uh, we have episodes, past episodes about we have one that's comparing self-publishing, traditional publishing, and indie publishing. Uh, so that's episode 
20, I believe. So you can go check that out. And then also I would like to recommend Sunya Dean and Scott Drakeford's The Publishing Rodeo podcast, where they're basically going through different aspects of publishing and mid-list. Spilling all the tea. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Just dumping the teapot on the ground and, and giving people all the dirty details. So. Yeah, those uh, are great resources to, for listeners. Yeah, yeah, check those out. Then go, 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 hit that up, and I'll put them in the in the links as well. Okay, this is probably not the most weird or random fact I know, but it's the <laughs> one I can think of at the moment. Is okay. that the 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 Muppeteer who does Mister Snuffleupagus oh. is also the guy who did um um in Little Shop of Horrors? He did the the plant. What? Really. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, I love that. Yeah, he was a guest. He was the guest host of uh, the Nebulas when I won my first Nebula Award for All Systems Red, and cool. we got to. And he brought Muppets, and we got to see. And Mary Robin at Kowal is also a puppeteer, yeah, so yeah. she was helping too. And we got to see a live Muppet performance. So like cool. it was god, like I love three, that. <laughs> it was three feet away from our table, and we were just sitting there, and it's like. Oh my god, and I forgot that there was gonna be an award show afterward. Yeah. I was just like <laughs> it was so cool. It was, you know, and you know, they're doing different things. I'm like, put the Muppets on again, you know. <laughs> Have that the Muppets give the awards. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. But that was really interesting talking to him and meeting him and hearing about that. And wow. Mr. Mr. Snuffleupagus and Audrey. Oh my yeah, god, so, I love that. Because so, I'm <laughs> I watching just pictured- I'm, like, my my son is obsessed with Sesame Street, so it's like you know we got a lot of Snuffleupagus up in this house, and, and right? it's really just cool picture to know him that. going, "See more, feed me." Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna message Mary Robinette and be like, "Do you have video of this? Like, please, does this right? video exist of this?" this we Muppet need the Muppet footage. <laughs> I love there, it. I think there is a video. It might be because I know they showed it. They streamed it. Uh, when it was when they when they did the award show. So Do you remember what year this was? <laughs> it would have been twenty eighteen. <laughs> it would have been twenty eighteen, I think. Yeah. Okay. All right, cool. Well <laughs> yeah, I'm just like We know what Adrian's just... Googling when we're done recording today. <laughs> yeah, whatever, man. He's watching whatever. some Muppets. <laughs> oh, I, want to show I love it. it. To that son. was a great fact. <laughs> Thank you, Martha. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. If you could please let folks know where they can find you on social media. Um, they can go to my website, MarthaWells.com. Uh, there's links there to, I'm on Goodreads or I have a, I have a blog on dream with that's, um, uh, sent to, sent to Goodreads and you can read it on there too. And, um, I'm on Mastodon, but that's about it right now. I'm not on very, I, I left Twitter, so. Probably, probably a smart, smart <laughs> but yeah, with a lot of other people, yeah. <laughs> a wise decision, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, you can also follow SFF Addicts on Twitter or Instagram <laughs> at SFF Addicts Pod. You can follow me at Adrian M. Gibson. MJ, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me across Twitter, TikTok, Instagram at MJ Coon Books, and that's all one word. Awesome. Well, that's it for this episode. Stay tuned for next week for part two with Martha to hear our mini masterclass on World Building 101. Now, keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts.